May you never play a minor female character who has the temerity to have sex for pleasure. But if you do, when your character inevitably dies, eh, at least it goes on the resume. Hi, and welcome to Sex and Whiskey. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about Of Lost Things, the fourth episode of season three. Of Lost Things aired on October 1st, 2017, and was written by Tony Graffia, who will also write next week's episode, Freedom and Whiskey. This episode was directed by Brendan Mayer, who will also direct next week's episode. I have to say, I think these two make a stellar team. We've been moving through these 20 years of separation with Claire and Jamie with much more structure and movement in the Jamie side of the story, and this week's episode is keeping up with that trend. We don't get much of Claire, but what we do get works nicely alongside Jamie's story and speaks poignantly to this week's theme of love and loss. All right. Let's go through the stones. Mr. Evans says the master wishes to speak with you. In Of Lost Things, Jamie adopts a new identity as Mac the Groom for the Dunsany family of Hellwater, but his freedom is mostly a mirage. But you are a prisoner, Mackenzie. Mind you, don't forget it. Life at Hellwater is fairly peaceful until Geneva Dunsany coerces Jamie to her bed before being forced to marry the distasteful 8th Earl of Ellesmere. It's a vile agreement. Geneva gets pregnant, and despite Ellesmere never having sex with his young wife, it isn't until Geneva dies giving birth that it occurs to him that the kid isn't his, and he throws the world's worst hissy fit. You seem damn sure of your daughter's purity! You certain the brat isn't yours! Jamie kills Ellesmere to protect the child, and stays on with the family until Willie grows old enough to start to look like Jamie, and Jamie realizes it's time to go. We all have our secrets. Moses walking around. With a promise from Lord John Gray and Isabel to care for his son, Jamie leaves Hellwater to start his life over again. Meanwhile, in 1968, Claire, Bree, and Roger continue to look for Jamie, demonstrating their seriousness with a serial killer investigation wall. Bree and Roger grow closer, but when they hit a dead end in their investigation, Claire makes a choice. This is what Mrs. Gray warned me about. Spending my life chasing a ghost. As Claire and Bree get on a plane back to America, Roger plays with his toy plane and thinks of lost things. Hellwater, despite the diabolical sound of the name, is a place of peace for Jamie, as he takes on yet another identity, this time as Mac the Groom. Once again, he's back in the stables with the horses, and he lives a simple life, which is not a bad thing. He is no longer a leader of men, no longer taking on that responsibility. He does his work as just another groom on the estate, part of the community rather than separate from it. And he continues his friendship with Lord John Gray, who makes frequent trips out to check on him. So even after all these months, you've come all this way to Hellwater for the sake of my welfare. Well, not just for that. Dude is still in love with Jamie, but it's okay because Lord John Gray is an honorable man who doesn't subscribe to the odious concept of the friend zone, in which men decide they're entitled to a return of their affections. This is true friendship, a love that is anchored in a sincere desire for the other's happiness and well-being. And once again, Outlander expresses male friendship and community beautifully. 
Last week, I talked about how masterfully subtle the writing establishing Lord John Gray's exile was. And here we have another layered and textured scene with Gray's older brother, Colonel Melton, as he and the Dunsany girls come upon Gray and Jamie playing a companionable game of chess. Melton's sour lemon expression as he recognizes Jamie and as he looks at his brother shows that he's obviously thinking there's an affair going on between the two. And I feel so wholly the emotional exile of Lord John Gray again, as even his family doesn't understand that just because he's gay, that is not all he is. He's also a good man, a faithful friend, an honorable person, and someone who deserves to be treated with a little more respect. Which makes the look of disappointment and disdain from his brother all the more heartbreaking. The relationship with Jamie is innocent, respectful, and pure. But because Gray is gay, he will never receive the benefit of any doubt, even from his family. There's something about the purity of Gray's affection for Jamie that touches me deeply. There's been some discussion in the Outlander fandom about the association of homosexuality with evil. We saw it in Black Jack Randall and again in The Duke of Sandringham. The presentation of Lord John Gray as the ultimate stand-up guy could have felt disingenuous, a cardboard character stuck into the narrative in order to combat the association of essential moral brokenness with being gay. But if anything, out of all these characters, Gray feels the most real and three-dimensional. And a big part of that is his goodness mixed with his vulnerability. To love and not be loved in return? That's true vulnerability. But Gray carries this weight with grace and true love, the kind of love that demands no return, that exists out of respect for the object of affection, a love that is about more than sexual attraction, but genuine caring for another person. Love and sex and possession so often go together, wound so tightly into a ropey tether that it's hard to separate one strand from the other. Gray can love without sex. He can love without possession. And his ability to love purely isn't just in his relationship with Jamie. His affection for both Isabel and Willie is clear. And while he may not have a carnal desire for Isabel, I think having a husband who respects and cares deeply for her is not that bad a deal. She made out far better in marriage than Geneva did. And while I imagine it would be difficult to not be physically desired by her husband, I do hope that there might be a nice-looking groom on her estate who won't need coercing to come to her bed. I'm just saying, Isabel may seem tightly buttoned up, but I bet that girl's a firecracker underneath all that lace. What disappointed me a bit was Jamie's complete misunderstanding of how Gray loved him, even after all this time, after all this proof of genuine friendship from Gray. When Jamie asks Gray to look after Willie, he makes him an offer of his body in exchange. This shows, as I suspected before, that Jamie's objection to Gray's advance at Ardsmuir was about power and not homophobia. But after all this time, after Gray has shown who he is over and over again, for Jamie to think that this is what he wants from Jamie and that he would ever accept it, makes me kind of sad. But of course, Gray is not offended. He simply corrects Jamie with love and endless true affection. You don't want me then. I should probably want you to the day I die, but tempted as I am, do you really think I would accept? While the love story between Jamie and Claire is powerful, and it's the reason that I've returned to Outlander so often since first discovering it, it's Lord John Gray's quiet and powerful ability to love truly, faithfully, and wisely that shows the true power of love itself. 
And it makes his character about so much more than being a counter to the idea that homosexuality is associated with brokenness. Gray demonstrates honor, love, and fidelity in everything he does. And gay or straight has absolutely nothing to do with it. Then I have no right to think out of you. Of course, peace is never a long-term thing for James Alexander Malcolm Mackenzie Fraser. As the petulant and spoiled Geneva Dunsany faces marriage to the 8th Earl of Ellesmere, her wandering and desperate eye lands on Jamie, and it all goes to hell from there as she blackmails him into coming to her bed and taking her virginity. And here's the thing about Geneva. Yes, she's absolutely a brat, and coercing someone into sex via blackmail is just another shade in the many gradations of rape that we see all too frequently in Outlander. But, I don't know. She's smart. She's tough. She doesn't whine, and when she has to take her lumps for her choices, she takes them. For one, when she tricks Jamie into thinking she's hurt on their excursion, and he dumps her in the mud, she laughs. She doesn't bitch and complain and act all offended. She knows what she is, and she's ready to accept the consequences of the game that she has chosen to play. She doesn't go running to Daddy to get Jamie in trouble, and yes, it's because she's not done with Jamie yet, but I think there's more to it than that. I think she respects Jamie for tossing her in the mud, and I respect that in her. Her threat against his freedom and his family to blackmail him into coming to her bed is truly awful. I mean, it's bad, I know. But when we get to the moment, there's a shift in her. She's out of her element, she's vulnerable, she's scared, and she's being forced to give her youth over to an old, gross man who sees her as a possession. This is her only way to fight back, and while it is wrong for her to use Jamie to her purposes, to make him risk his job and possibly his freedom for the sake of her vengeance, I have sympathy for her. The sex scene, despite its distasteful circumstance, shifts into this extension of grace and kindness from Jamie. And there are so many reflections between this and his first time with Claire. First, we get the hands on the chest, which is Claire's move from the wedding, one Jamie replicated with Mary McNabb, and again here with Geneva. He extends such kindness to her, showing her how it's done in a lovely reflection of the way Claire showed him all those years ago even including a nod to the mixture of pain and pleasure. Did I hurt you? It was painful at first, but then I liked it. And then in their discussion afterward, when Geneva tells Jamie she loves him, we have a reflection back to the conversation he and Claire had in Both Sides Now. Was it always so between a man and a woman? It's often something like this. But no, this isn't usual. His response to Geneva shows the wisdom he's gained since losing Claire and knowing that no, what they had was not usual. What do you feel for me now? You could have with any other man. No particular. Love is when you give your heart and soul to another. And they give theirs in return. And this is one of the things we're seeing in season three that I absolutely love. All the time apart, and Jamie and Claire are still together. Jamie mirrors Claire in everything. As he closes his eyes to be with Mary McNabb in surrender, 
as he imposes poultices on Murtaugh and all debts paid, and as he teaches Geneva about sex and of lost things. He carries Claire with him in every breath, in every heartbeat, and it's beautiful and so, so sad. But of course, Geneva's story can't end well. She gets pregnant by Jamie and then gives birth to the child and dies. And apparently, if Isabel's claim that Geneva never slept with her husband is true, it is only after she dies that someone made the mistake of explaining the birds and the bees to the 8th Earl of Ellesmere, and he freaks out and holds a knife to the baby. Jamie shoots and kills Ellesmere and saves his son, and when Lady Dunsany offers Jamie his freedom, he decides to stay and be with the only of his three children that he has ever been able to meet. We get a few years of Jamie spending time with his son as Mac the Groom until the resemblance between them becomes obvious enough that even Lady Dunsany notices. We joke sometimes that he spends so much time with Mackenzie, he's starting to look like him. Now, this woman does not seem stupid. The actress certainly doesn't play her as stupid, but the innocence with which this line is delivered, along with not so much as even a raised eyebrow from the friend, yeah, right. These women have certainly seen some shit in their day, and they have to know better. Maybe, maybe Lady Dunsany is that naive, but you want me to believe the friend hasn't been gossiping about Geneva from day one? I doubt it. Jamie makes his decision, and before he leaves, Willie comes to visit him in his monkish hidey hole, just as he's praying to St. Anthony, the patron saint of lost things. Who do you pray for? My brother. It's called Willie. Like you. And my sister. My godfather. My wife. You haven't a wife. Not anymore. He baptizes Willie in secret, making the kid a stinking papist, and then leaves the estate on to the next phase of his life, which, if the best predictor of the future is the past, will come with yet another new identity. At least one. What must I call you then? Alex. The adventures of Claire, Bree, and Roger in Scotland are less powerful than Jamie's story, but come on. You've got blackmail, coercive sex, death, violence, and Lord John Gray on Jamie's side, while Claire's features a research wall and ship manifests. Which I kind of dig, but I'm a research nerd. I mean, show me a wall full of index cards linked by string, and I'm yours forever, baby. While Claire's story is quieter, it thrums with the same heartbeat of loss that Jamie's story has. Because in the same way that Jamie carries Claire with him, she carries him with her as well. There's been a lot of argument about the love triangle in Outlander, which was never a triangle no matter how hard they tried to force it. But in Claire's story, we get a whisper of the real love triangle here when Joe calls her from America, reconnecting her with her work as a surgeon as he reports news about one of her patients. I saw Harry Greenbaum today for abdominal pain. Harry? What did you find? Positive Murphy signing calcifications on the x-ray. I schedule the surgery for next week. You can handle it, Joe. Of course I can. But I'm just surprised you want to insist on doing it yourself. And here's the thing, in 1968, it was a tough slog for Claire to become a surgeon, but she was able to do it. What she has the ability to do in 1968, as opposed to what she was able to do back in the 18th century, has to be a pull on her. We ended last season with the flagrantly overdramatic, I have to go back. 
And now we're seeing the consequence of that idea, what she would lose in addition to leaving Brie, her work. Jamie might be alive in 1746 Scotland, but he might not. She doesn't know. And even if he is, it can't be an easy choice. When they hit a dead end with the shipping manifest in Edinburgh, Claire makes the decision. She doesn't want to spend the rest of her life, or at least the rest of her vacation, chasing a ghost. She dismantles the serial killer wall, and she and Bree head back to America. On the plane, we get this sad shot of Claire staring out the window as Scotland disappears beneath her. And then we pull out to the empty seat next to Bree, representing the ghost of a father she'll never meet, who will never know about her. Well, never say never. As the investigation unfolds, we spend some time with Bree and Roger, and, well... I'm a terrible person. Finally, something we agree on. Well, at least we've acknowledged it textually. Here's the thing that drives me crazy about Brie. I want to like her. She's Claire and Jamie's kid. I adore Roger, and Roger adores her, and I can't tell you how hard I have tried to like her in both the books and the TV show. The source material is not good to Brie, but I was hoping the TV show would find a way to make her better, to give her texture, to play down her brattiness and play up her intelligence and her resourcefulness. And when we do get a little bit of that while she's helping Roger fix the car, it gets ruined with this Regina George nonsense. Will you have some cream on your scone, Roger? You know she has a crush on you. Fiona? Oh, no. She just likes being helpful. You know, at first I thought maybe Fiona was your girlfriend. Look, Bree's not stupid. She knows that Roger is totally into her. She's messing with him and mocking Fiona to do it. Poor sweet Fiona, who makes a killer scone, who cares deeply for Roger, and who gives to Claire the pearls her grandmother left her. You know what, Bree? Roger could do worse. Roger could do a lot worse worse. So even in that scene, when Brie figures out the distributor cap is loose and we get to see her intelligence and her capability, it's marred by her extreme lack of basic kindness and respect for someone who, let's not forget, has been nothing but lovely to Brie. Then we get the scene on the couch with Roger when Brie talks about being a terrible person, so, you know, points for self-awareness, and then knowing full well how he feels about her as he has just confessed it, she kisses him then just darts off as he's going in for round two, leaving him sitting on the couch wondering what the hell just happened. The manic pixie mean girl thing wouldn't work for any character, but on Brie, it makes her seem almost maliciously mercurial. One minute she's one kind of person, the next, something else. None of it makes sense. All of it is incongruent. It almost feels like we use Brie to be whatever we need her to be in order to confound the other characters in whatever scene she's in. What we get, in the end, is a character that makes no sense, that is almost sociopathically unconcerned with her effect on the people around her. And in the same story space as other characters who are so beautifully and deeply and consistently written, I just don't get it. I didn't get it in the books, and especially don't get it in the TV show, which, through the magic of adaptation, has this opportunity to fix the problem. I hope they take that opportunity in the future, because I adore Roger, and I'd really like to see him with a woman who is worthy of his devotion. I, mean, I have girls who are friends, but not one I'd call a, I don't, there's not, I don't have a girlfriend. 
As proof that love is stronger than hate, I will tell you that I was thrilled to get more responses than ever this week when I asked about Lord John Gray. Thank you so much to everyone who submitted a video, and if your video isn't here, it's purely because of time. Please share your videos with the community using hashtag SawChip so everyone can see what y'all had to say because it was just brilliant. So without further ado, take it away, guys. Hello, Lonnie and my fellow Outlander fangirls and fanboys. This is my answer to Lonnie's question, what I thought about Lord John Gray. I have been eagerly anticipating this character because as a bisexual myself, even though Lord John is gay, but still, I think that his inclusion into this uh, particular story is pretty awesome because I think that representation in all different forms of media is very, very important for him to sort of and I thought that he handled it really well when Jamie sort of rejected him. And I am just so excited to see more of his character in, in future episodes. I thought that David Barry did a phenomenal job and he ain't too bad on the eyes either. So Lord John Gray, I think it is so great that Jamie has someone that is on his side. He does have Murtaugh. But having someone with whom he can speak at times as almost an equal and that they have just this great connection and I love it. Hey Lonnie, this is Brandon from Southern California. Uh, in this episode, when it comes to Lord John Gray, the moment that he just blew me away was when Jamie names the wine in the sauce. Or whatever the French thing was in the sauce. And Gray doesn't... He just got completely outcultured by this guy. And he doesn't get mad he doesn't get like flustered he just has this look of vulnerability on his face like sure I mean that's that's so cool that you know that <laughs> and it just totally speaks to how cool of a guy he is I really like Lord John Gray and the reasons are that he's witty he's urbane he's um, honorable but the real big reason for me is that he's humane you know he's a wealthy man of a certain status yet he has relationships with people of all classes and statuses and he shows them well he's class bound because he's british and it's the 18th century but he's um he's also um he sees them as human beings if murtaugh is jamie's highlander friend and godfather um, and understands jamie on that level John is the chess-playing, wine-drinking, pheasant-eating, um, foodie friend, the intellectual one, and Jamie needs that. By the way, David Barry is killing it, um, just doing great. It would be really great if um, we could show him not being that, that gay trope of the lovely but sad best gay friend who's um, pining after the very, very straight hero and acting like a sidekick. I love him and I've loved him from the beginning. I hope that in the hands of this actor and the writers that they can expand on his humor and his warmth and uh, make him a tad less piney for Jamie. 
but overall I am just so excited to see how the rest of this season unfolds. Thank you so, so much to everyone who responded, and I'm so glad to see such unanimous love for Lord John Gray and for David Barry, who portrays the character. One of the things I haven't been doing much in Sex and Whiskey is talking about the people, either the actors or the creatives behind the scenes, because there's just so much story stuff to talk about. And these videos are already topping out at over 20 minutes, which is a long time. But I would like to say that we're seeing a lot of fantastic performances, both on screen and off, from this crew of people. And it was nice to see so much love for David Barry come through in the viewer videos. So on that note, this week's question is going to be about the amazing talent on this show. This week, I want you to nominate an Outlander VIP. Whose work have you most enjoyed while watching the show? And this is by no means limited to actors or writers or directors. If you've been blown away by Bear McCreary's music, Terry Dresback's costumes, or someone else's something else, please share your love. Send a Google Drive or Dropbox link to Lonnie at chipperish.com. And while I'm now getting so many videos that I just can't include everything, I do watch every second of every submission and I freaking adore them, especially when we're celebrating the things we love about the show. That'll do it for today. This episode of Sex and Whiskey was brought to you by Emily P, who supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level, and as a reward, gets to produce whatever show she wants. Thank you, Emily, and thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. If you'd like to find out how you can become a Chipperish producer, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on season three, episode five, Freedom and Whiskey. Slangeva. Sex and Whiskey is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely funded by passionate story lovers like you. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you can become a Chipperish Media supporter.